Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and a special extra edition, a North Shropshire by-election edition, for which I'm really glad to welcome back to the show, formerly, previously the most popular guest in this parliament, Professor Tim Bale. He has, however, been pipped at the post most recently by his colleague, Alan Wager, and by Caitlin Milazzo for the episodes I've done with them respectively about tactical voting and the impact of political leaflets. Now, both of those are topics that are very relevant to North Shropshire. So this may be your chance to regain your number one slot, Tim, but <laughs> welcome back to the show, Tim. Thank you. That is the only reason I'm here, obviously, Mark. <laughs> now, obviously, listeners would expect me to get quite excited about a Liberal Democrat by-election gain. And I can bore you, Tim, with lots of statistics, like it's the first time since 1993 that the Lib Dems have gained two seats from the Tories in parliamentary by-elections in the same calendar year. Or my favourite one, that it's the first time since 1981 that we've gained a seat from the Tories in England when starting third or worse. Mm. And in 1981, that took the creation of a new political party, the SDP, one of the UK's most popular politicians as the candidate, Shirley Williams, and a massive economic recession to bring that about. So I think however you look at it, or even if you just look at the bare figure of a 34% swing, a pretty big result. But from your slightly detached academic I was going to say ivory tower but maybe I should say lookout tower looking down on politics uh, from a little bit of a distance what's your view on how big or not a result this really was with Helen winning in North Shropshire well to be honest I think it would be difficult to um, <clears throat> play it down I mean the size of the swing alone is incredibly impressive by election since the seventh biggest War. apparently yeah so I mean we we really I think you know, have to say that this is a, a landmark, an earthquake, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the question, I guess, is whether, you know, like some earthquakes, it's just a kind of rumble and people get on with their lives or whether it, you know, shatters things completely. And, uh, you know, we have a whole new political terrain to cope with. But, but certainly, I think it will be very difficult, even for the Lib Dems, to underplay this particular by-election result. And I think particularly the fact that it's two in a row in terms of Cheshire and Amersham and then North Shropshire, which I think does suggest there's something more going on here than just one, you know, freak by-election. Well, uh, yes. And it's also the characteristics of the constituency, mm -hmm. isn't it? Because, you know, you could look at Cheshire and Amersham and say it was a Remain mm -hmm. voting constituency. It's one of those constituencies around London you know the whatever you want to call it the yellow halo the blue wall or whatever that most people consider might be vulnerable to the Lib Dems should the government come unstuck but this was a leave voting constituency quite rural you know fairly affluent but not actually that many graduates or younger people that the kind of demographics that you would expect in some ways to favour the Lib Dems and yet and yet it's clearly voted massively away from the Conservative Party towards the, the Lib Dems so I think that's significant as well if the Lib Dems can can win here in some ways one would think that there's a distinct possibility of them being able to win in in many of the seats which you know looking at it demographically we would think they were even more in contention. Yes, and I think two of the normally smartest commentators on British politics, Stephen Bush and Will Jennings, both had, I think, to the outside 
eyes very convincing looking reasons ahead of the result as to why they thought the Lib Dems weren't going to win. Mm. Um, I, I think the thing that they probably both underplayed was it's quite rare for the Lib Dems, you know, to really throw everything at a by-election and not to win. There are occasional examples of that, Hartlepool, not the most recent Hartlepool by-election, but the one back in back when we had a Labour government is the sort of classic example about Birmingham Hodge Hill as, as well. But but in a way, that only just slightly displaces the question because there obviously is a, an extent to which we throw everything at it because we can see that we've got a chance of winning and therefore mm. it's not. Obviously, mm. throwing everything at it helps make it winnable, but it's also only happens when there's also some evidence of it being yeah. winnable as well. So what, what do you think? I've obviously got some thoughts myself, but what do you think is it that caused the result then why why did this what was it that was going on that in a way caught even respected and <laughs> political commentators unawares well i mean i think there was some concern about the extent to which voters would know which was the best anti-tory option at the start of this by-election there was some concern that the so-called progressive vote might split two ways to, to labor and and the lib dems but the fact is uh, and I think this is very interesting and, and, you know, bodes well in some senses for the future, if you don't like the Conservatives, that voters made up their mind very early on who was in second place. Now, whether that was helped by uh, the Lib Dem campaign releasing some internal polling, which suggested that that was the case, or whether it was the fact that Labour, you know, although didn't explicitly give up on the seat, didn't really campaign very hard on it. I, I don't know. But I think, you know, that did make a, a, a very big difference. And I, I, I think perhaps, you know, people people were still thinking, even towards the end of this by-election, that, that maybe that split would mean that the Conservatives managed to come through the middle, uh, as it were. But that didn't happen. So I, say, I would say that was one of the most significant things. People were aware, perhaps, that the Lib Dems had, you know, gone into second place. But whether it was a kind of good enough second place and in the end the first place I'm not sure um, people were were too sure of and, and I think that's partly because obviously this wasn't a place where the Lib Dems had loads of local councillors mm. for example and normally when we see the Lib Dems you know move into a seat it's because they've got existing strength there there's a, a sort of epidemiology as I put it of uh, of Lib Dem by-election victories and and you know that wasn't so obvious this time around so I think you know it, it was it was partly that, that that people, you know, were unsure about, to be honest. Yeah. And I think actually it's to the credit of political journalists that pretty much all of those who visited the constituency and then wrote up a report and it got, as we now know, very clearly, correctly, that it was the Lib Dems who were well mm. ahead of Labour, even though Labour had been ahead in 2019. Yeah. Um, and definitely there were some Labour, local Labour activists who were very vociferously dissenting from that. Although I think my favourite example was the person who was tweeting about how it was all lies that the Lib Dems were in second place and all of that, and then went on to tweet a complaint about how they had 11 leaflets from the Lib Dems, and this was <laughs> way too many when they'd had three leaflets from Labour and, you know, two leaflets yeah. from the Tories. Yeah. And you sort of thought, I'm not sure you've really put your two tweets together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're playing we're out campaigning, yeah. you four to one. And you've got to say that once again, the Lib Dems you know, produce some incredibly hard-hitting leaflets, you know, using the, you know, the chaos that's been going on in Downing Street to very, very good effect. You know, that that was very impressive stuff. And no doubt a lot of those were delivered. You know, we know from our party members' research that the Lib Dems still are king of the letterbox, uh, as far as that's concerned. And I think once you 
put that into a by-election situation, it can actually make a difference. I mean, there is some research to show that leafleting, as you know, does actually sway some voters. And I'm sure there was an awful lot of voter contact as well. And again, we know that that helps sway voters. I guess the only perhaps, you know, more worrying downside, as it were, for for the Lib Dems and Labour was that the, the turnout was relatively low. It wasn't incredibly low, but I guess if I were a Conservative wanting to clutch at some straws, I might suggest that, well, most of my voters stayed home mm-hmm. rather than necessarily switching um, straight over to, to the Lib Dem. But I, I find that a little difficult to believe. I mean, I, I think clearly some did stay home, but there must have been a very, very big mm. switch from one party to another, uh, irrespective of that. And certainly, I think if you look at by-elections that we've gained, where we've then gone on to hold them in the next general election, it's not like they have much higher turnout than other by-elections. Mm. That's interesting. I, yeah. I, I think there's... The sort of the turnout is lower because it's a by-election and particularly in this case it's a by-election in December and I think in Mm. fact in that context it was probably a reasonably healthy turnout. Yeah I mean it was interesting I was um, I wrote something for the Telegraph today on the Eastbourne by-election you know which in some ways you can say there is a parallel there it's a a leader in trouble. 1990 and obviously the Lib Dem version is that by winning Eastbourne we both rescued the party and got rid of Mrs Thatcher and I think there's a a heavy degree of truth to both of those, although yeah, it's not yeah. the sole factor in either. Yeah, case. it's an obvious parallel to draw. But uh, I was looking at the result back then, and the turnout then I think was around sixty percent. Mm. So clearly, those were the days, perhaps, when people tended to turn out a little bit more at by-elections. But but even then, you know, some Conservatives were saying, well, that's because our supporters have stayed home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I, I do think there are parallels there, although I think in some ways. Actually, this is the more impressive result, although historically Eastbourne was massive because, as you say, actually a week before Mrs Thatcher was was comparing the Lib Dem, you know, bird of freedom to to a dead parrot, only a week before polling day when, when the Conservatives lost that very safe seat. But in some ways, this is even more impressive because... When Thatcher lost Eastbourne in, in October 1990, the, the, the Conservatives had been behind the, the main opposition party, which was Labour, obviously, for well over a year at that point. And in fact, Labour had a double digit lead by, by the time the Eastbourne by-election took place. So the Conservatives were really, really unpopular. There'd been the poll tax. The economy had really run into trouble. They were, you know, fighting like cats in a sack over Europe. You know, there were all sorts of things going wrong and it had been going wrong for quite a long time. Whereas in, in North Shropshire, really things have only just started to head south in terms of opinion polling for the Conservatives in the last few weeks. And so to, to pull off something like that, you know, in those circumstances is in some sense even more impressive. Yeah, and I guess the other factor or one of the other factors is having a local candidate that, you know, yeah. again, there's lots of academic research evidence that having a local candidate is a big boon. And I think it's worth adding the really important caveat that it does seem like candidates can make themselves local very quickly Mm. Uh, and that because I think sometimes people fear that an emphasis on a local candidate is ends up being quite a discriminatory in some sense yeah this because there are particular demographics who are more likely to be mobile and therefore to move around etc but actually as indeed Sarah Green demonstrated in Cheshire and Amersham you can establish local credentials in the eyes of voters very quickly and I think what the Conservative candidate in North Shropshire failed to do was to establish any of those local credentials, mm. partly uh, because 
And I don't know whether this was due to him or his press office and whether it was the right or wrong calculation, but the campaign hit him from the media. You know, that there were the media often, media reports often referred to interviews with him being refused. And that in itself, you know, sends yeah. the wrong message. Yeah. There were some comments that he made that made him sound like he really didn't understand uh, cows. And therefore, again, <laughs> that sort of played to the, the fact that where he was living appeared to be a holiday let cottage. So mm -hmm. he was living in the constituency during the contest, but it was a holiday let cottage, which was available for rent from the day after the by-election. You know, oh. just all of those things yeah, yeah, added yeah. up to a sense of... Yeah. He sort of not local, not even really properly trying to be local in a way that actually had, you know, had he moved into the constituency properly a few weeks earlier, had he mugged up and known more about farming, had he been up to doing more media interviews, I think, you know, you, you can make yourself local very quickly, but they yeah. the, the yeah. failed. I mean, on, on the point of the media interviews, I mean, the, the problem for him was in some ways illustrated by that interview he did with Michael Crick. Mm. Um, when Michael Crick just asked him repeatedly, you know, what he saw in Boris Johnson. Yeah. And he was just unable really to answer because Boris Johnson had put him and the party in such an incredibly difficult position because of, the Prime Minister's action or lack thereof yeah, it, over it, the last it, few weeks. Yeah. I mean, I'm I, I'm not sure I would have wanted to have to answer an equivalent type question from Michael Crick, you know, because <laughs> he's very good at spotting those. But it did seem like a fairly obvious question for him to be asked. Mm, mm. And again, you sort of thought there was just a back, I, I guess, a sense of complacency mm. that permeated the Conservative campaign that then fed into this sense of voters of we're being taken for granted. We're being taken for granted in the sense that when you hear Boris Johnson talking about what he wants to do in government, it's about the Red Wall. It's not about places like North Shropshire. Mm -hmm. And then when you have a Conservative by-election campaign that oozes that sort of complacency, and then when you have all of the issues of double standards and so on around parties, Christmas parties and the like, it just all added up to a picture. And the thing that really struck me, you know, I spoke to quite a few voters, I guess, in total over the few weeks, is how little specific issues stood out. It was much more, I've always voted Conservative, but I guess I'm not going to this time. And then you could get into a conversation in which there would be lots of factors, but it was a much more widespread, more general sense of malaise, mm. um, which mm. I think, again, was the case in Cheshire and Amersham. It wasn't just about, you know, this one issue. It was a more general. And I think that's danger or hope, I guess, depending on your political outlook for the Conservatives, that this this is, you know, much more than, say, when the Conservatives lost Eastbourne, well, dumping Mrs Thatcher was the solution. When they lost Ribble Valley, dumping the poll tax it was the solution. Whether there is really such a simple political solution for the Conservatives, I think, is much more in mm. question. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, what we're going to get now is a lot of speculation as to whether dumping Boris Johnson is is the answer, and and it may be that you know it is actually in the in the medium to long term for the Conservatives. I don't see them doing it before Christmas, but I would have thought in the spring they're going to have to take a long hard look at. Him and a long hard look at themselves, particularly if Labour does, you know, go into a, a double-digit lead and, and sustain it for some time. I mean, I think if I were the Conservatives, as I say, I would be most worried about the, you know, implicit tactical voting that's been going on. You know, the the fact that voters don't actually need an electoral pack. You know, they're perfectly capable of picking up the signals themselves. 
and deciding if they don't want the Tory MP who to vote for instead. And, you know, we found in our research, as you know, that Mm. that that is increasingly the case. It's increasingly obvious after the 2019 election who is in second place in most seats. And, you know, voters can pick up those cues if they so choose. And obviously in a by-election, in some ways, there's a little bit more focus on them uh, and they'll spend perhaps a little bit more time than they might otherwise do in a general election but I I don't know if that's the case actually I've not seen any research into whether voters in by-elections as it were pay more attention to to electoral politics in the same way that they do in national campaigns you know when in advance of a general election so you know that that would be interesting to look at but your point about this you know, that this was in some senses a national campaign is interesting because, of course, we do hear a lot about, you know, the kind of pavement politics that um, the Lib Dems do so well. And there was talk, wasn't there, about, you know, farm subsidy payments. There was talk about local, you know, ambulance waiting times, waiting times more generally in the NHS. And I guess, you know, they did play a role, as they always do in, in these elections. Yeah, I think ambulance waiting times, particularly, you know, if you look at the the canvas briefing sheets that, you know, Lib Dems were, were given to sort of go out before canvassing, you know, mm. and when I was sort of reading through them, there were a few things I had to mug up and remember. So remember Helen Morgan, she's local, she lives in Harmer Hill, you know, there's mm. a few bits, but there wasn't the depth of information about local issues to really take on board oh. in a way that there have been in, you know, campaigns you know where I've I've, I've gone and helped mm. in the past it was even where it was say something like ambulance waiting times in a way a very local issue because of the ambulance waiting times in that constituency and the bottlenecks at the at the local A&E that then exacerbates that because the ambulances are caught in the queue outside the A&E and so on but that's actually in many ways a national issue about the state of yeah. the NHS and A&E services and so on that happens to have played out with one particular A&E service you know, in the constituency. I think the other thing that sort of strikes me um, about the result and sort of what may or you know, may not have caused it is that even with 100% efficient tactical voting, when the Conservatives were starting on over 60% of the vote, it required a big chunk of Conservatives to switch you know, to, to the Lib Dems. And I do think, you know, tactical voting has clearly been an, you know, an important part of the story in Chesham and Amersham and in North Shropshire. But in both cases, the Conservatives started with a level of support where it couldn't only be about tactical voting. No, no quite and right. I think, I think what we've managed to do successfully in both of those campaigns is figure out how to get Conservatives to switch to us. And I think there is a question about whether Labour is really emotionally ready, if that's not too patronising a term, to concentrate on how do I understand soft Tories and how do I win them over, as opposed to, and Raphael Baer made this point, I think very powerfully in a recent piece in Guardian Stroke Observer, being in the mindset of, I just hate people who vote Tory and cannot understand them. Because if you're in that mindset, then how on earth do you figure out how to win over soft Tories? And I think that I think you know, this has been very much a signature part of Ed Davies' leadership of saying this is the vote group, voting group that we really need to focus in on yeah. and understand. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, we've seen how that's played dividends. It'll be really interesting to see how that potentially plays out in the May local elections next year when there are you know, more normal campaigning circumstances, hopefully in the run up to them. <laughs> than for the last local elections and lots of you know, Lib Dem Tory battlegrounds up for election next year. That's right. I mean, the, the Lib Dems have always 
to some extent and the Liberals before them being a repository for you know what you call soft Tory voters people who might normally be expected to vote Conservative but just can't bring themselves to do it this time around and we've really seen that you know since the the 1960s and I guess Labour have never really apart perhaps from Tony Blair reconciled themselves um, to that and I think in some ways that you know, lack of emotional readiness, if you want to call it, or hostility in some ways is compounded by, you know, what happened in the coalition. I think there are so many Labour people who still resent the Lib Dems decision to go into coalition with the Conservatives in 2010 and tell themselves, look, that's what the Lib Dems are really like when you, you know, scratch the surface away. But they find it very, very difficult to, you know, not only to work with the Lib Dems in some ways, but but also to you know, to allow them to to have you know what amounts to a run, even though it might be in their best interest. I actually think Helen Morgan's acceptance speech is really, really interesting in that respect. I mean, to send out that signal so explicitly to thank you know former Labour voters mm-hmm. um, for you know coming over to the Lib Dems, and there must have been some of that going on. I, I thought that was that was very interesting, and whether it will actually change the minds of many Labour activists on the ground or or even uh, Westminster is another matter. But I, I think that was a highly emotionally intelligent thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think as far as I can tell from the outside, looking in at Labour in that sense is I think, you know, it's there are definitely two strands of thought amongst Labour members and activists, and it doesn't neatly fit any sort of left, right, internal Labour, left, right delineation that you get for example, Mark Seddon and Luke Akehurst, who are from two very different internal Labour Party strands, are both pretty strongly anti-Lib Dem. Mm. Um, but in a way, it almost doesn't quite matter what some senior figures do or don't do, if on the one hand, the purse strings are sensibly deployed. Mm. And it'll be interesting when election expenses returns are all published to compare Labour spending in, let's say, Old Bexley and Sidcup with North Shropshire. Mm. And also if grassroots Labour members in a way vote with their feet. I think one of the things that scuppered various potential Lib Dem gains from the Tories in the 2019 election was lots of Labour activists flooding those seats because Labour thought they could win those seats as well. Yeah. And you know, leaving aside the rights and wrongs of individual seats and which party had the better case. Nonetheless, there was clearly that sense of grassroots Labour enthusiasm in a way that there wasn't in North Shropshire. And if mm. you look at the, the Labour candidate was very active and there was some a relatively small number of local Labour activists who were very active, sometimes in amusingly bizarre ways, like the local press officer and his figures supposedly showing how Labour was closing in on the Tories with the Dib Dems listen third. But you then look at the photos of the Mount campaigning. This was not, you know, small numbers of people. This, even though Labour has a much bigger membership than the Lib Dems, many fewer Labour members in absolute terms, let alone relative terms, responded, as far as I can see, to calls for help compared with Lib Dems. And that's not just about Lib Dems loving by-elections. I think there was a genuine Labour members voting with their feet, thinking we want to give Boris Johnson a kicking. I'll stay at home then. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also an extent as well, if I were a Labour supporter and looking for, again, straws to clutch at from this result, I would say maybe Keir Starmer has played a role in this as well. I mean, we know from 2019 that one of the things that put some soft Conservative voters off from voting Lib Dem in, in many constituencies was the thought of a Jeremy Corbyn 
government. Now, of course, they weren't voting for a government this time around. They were just voting in a by-election. But I think there is an extent to which Keir Starmer is a more reassuring figure, someone who's not going to kind of scare the soft Tory horses. And therefore, I think, you know, they feel more able, if you like, to, to go across to the Lib Dems, knowing that, you know, if the worst were to come to the worst, <laughs> as it were, then, you know, it will be a Keir Starmer Labour government rather than the Jeremy Corbyn um, government. And that's certainly what you saw in the, you know, the 1990s, which is the kind of halcyon days of, you know, Lib Lab implicit tactical voting cooperation. And, you know, we know there's there's no doubt that 1997 was such an incredible, shaking result, in part because, you know, the, the Lib Dems and, and the Labour Party came to some kind of implicit arrangement which you know was communicated to the voters in quite subtle ways by Ashdown and Blair and yeah. I'm not saying that Ed Davey and Keir Starmer will will do the same but you know there could be a bit of that going on going forward. Yeah and it's I mean in many ways as you say 1997 was the pinnacle of effective anti-conservative tactical voting I do think if you think about the structural and logistical issues of involved in tactical voting in British politics, that the basic backdrop should be much more favourable for tactical voting now. And therefore, there's a possibility that what could be achieved at a future general election would significantly exceed even what was achieved in 1997. So one thing, for example, I picked up lots of you know anecdotal feedback around was local village WhatsApp groups discussing mm-hmm. the election and so on. And therefore that word of mouth, oh, you know, you can see Lib Dem posters up, you can't see Labour posters up. I've had, you know, everyone talking about how they've had a Lib Dem call on them that weekend. All of that stuff could could spread really powerfully. And you know, things like it's the upside, I guess, <laughs> of what social media has done to us is that it makes it possible for those those messages and that sort of the the most credible of endorsements, which is seven people down your street saying something, mm. not just a politician saying it in their own self-interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that there's that the greater dealignment of you know of politics, the ease, you know, the continued easing of factors like class and explaining which way people vote, which again should set up greater possibilities for tactical voting. And I think you know, the greater availability of things like tactical voting websites and so on, potentially. You know, it just feels like if other factors were to come together in the right way, that that 1997 level tactical voting should be possible to exceed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And I mean, the other big question, and it comes back to the demographics of the constituency and, and other constituencies, of course, is is whether you know, we're beginning to see Brexit, you know, playing playing out in the sense of you know, rather than becoming, you know, hard and fast identities leave and remain, they're perhaps softening a little bit, at least relative to, to other issues that, that bother voters. You know, certainly some of those people who voted Lib Dem must have voted, you know, by definition, must have voted. Uh, and, you know, in order to be able to do that, to cross that, you know, threshold, as it were, that does suggest that some of what political scientists call effective polarisation may be softening just a little, even if people still stick to, you know, thinking that leaving was the right thing to do or leaving was the wrong thing to do. It, it, it is possible that, those leave and remain identities, particularly by the next election, just aren't quite so 
all defining, all consuming, uh, and therefore, you know, the Conservatives in some senses will be in trouble because the, the reason that they managed to win the 2019 election was because they were incredibly good at mobilising on, on that particular fault line. And, and, and also, I, think, I think there's a question that even if the leave and remain identities haven't eased very much, whether they become less directly consequential for people's voting choice. Mm -hmm. So I had one voter, but the only voter, if I remember rightly, who mentioned Brexit to me Mm -hmm. was, again, a former Conservative, uh, who I'm pretty sure will have voted in the end for Helen on Thursday. And what he said was along the lines of, well, now that Brexit has happened, I can think about voting for you. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it wasn't that his Brexit identity had eased, but it was that now it's a different context. Yeah. He could veer away from it without undermining his identity. And that sort of reminded me of part of the reason the Lib Dems ended up going down this rabbit hole of supporting referendums of different sorts to do with Britain's relationship with the EU. Dates way back, I, I remember it in the Newbury by-election. So 1993, the last time you know, in the calendar year, you know, Lib Dems took two seats off mm. the Tories in parliamentary by-elections, one of them in Newbury. One of the final you know, newspapers that we distributed in the campaign had a front page story about how we were in favour of a referendum on Britain's membership of the European Monetary Union. Mm. And that was very much a sense of saying we have our pro-European views, but we're trying to get some some people who are not as pro-European as us to vote for us. And it's okay. Here's a reassurance, because if you vote for us, you're not going to have membership of the monetary union of the european monetary system as it were foisted on you you'll still get a choice you know you can vote lib dem in this by-election and then vote you know a different way in a referendum to come and likewise the fact that brexit has happened and that an immediate reapplication for britain to join the eu isn't in the realm of you know realistic politics in the near future i think similarly gives an opportunity to to separate european sort of perspective from what is your voting choice? But obviously, I think the dilemma for the Lib Dems, the challenge for us is to get the, that balance right of not to sell out on our pro-Europeanism and find a way to win more people over to the view that Britain should in the long term be in the EU, but doing it at a pace and a rate that means we can still win over some of those people and get them in the habit of listening to us and then maybe also convert them in their views on the European issue too. I mean, what's been very interesting actually from the Conservative point of view or the government point of view in the last few days really is, you know, they are beginning, it seems to me, to be softening some of the, the rhetoric and some of the negotiating tactics that they're employing with Brussels. They, they seem to have recognised, particularly on Northern Ireland, for example, that it's not necessarily going to do them any good to make this a forever war. And you know, that, I, I suggest, you know, is, is to some extent driven by what they're finding in focus groups and, and polling. I think you know, there's always this temptation to bash Brussels or to bash France. You know, we've seen a bit of French bashing, obviously, mm. but it may be that they're picking up you know, what we are seeing in some polling, which is actually people aren't very impressed with that mm. um, anymore. Oh, that's interesting, because I, I had, I guess, sort of taken the assumption that it was maybe a bit more to do with actual substance, mm. as in finding that the... French bashing, etc., approach was just not working. Yeah, I mean, and therefore, I get, there's yeah. a bit of of taking a different tack in order to try to get, mm. you know, to to get some some agreements in place, particularly yeah. over you know Northern Ireland and yeah. sort of cross cross channel migration. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly important for conservatives, if we're to give them some advice, is that they remember that in the 2019 election, an awful lot of people who voted conservative to get Brexit done voted to get it done and move on mm. <laughs> and, and actually, you know, encourage the government to do the things that they really wanted it to do, which was to rescue some of the public services, in particular health, in particular policing, and to some extent education. And, you know, there's that whole levelling up agenda as well to do something, you know, perhaps in terms of infrastructure for some of those so-called left behind places. So, as I say, I, I think Conservatives really need to remember that. It's not actually necessary that Brexit in and of itself won them that 2019 election. And if they think that by continuing Brexit, continuing the war with Brussels or, you know, be it France, Berlin, you know, whatever, that's actually not going to do them very much good. Mm. I don't know how much of that they did in this election. I, I must admit, I haven't seen, you know, the Conservatives leaflets and seen the kind of messages they were trying to push out. It'll be interesting to see, you know, perhaps when we get some of that stuff, we can analyse it, whether, whether they made much of Brexit or not. No, I, I don't think in the terms of the stuff I saw, I don't think they made that much of it. And certainly they didn't really go to town on a, you know, vote Lib Dem and Brexit will get wrecked type That's interesting. Um, message. Mm. Um, and I guess one of their Achilles heels is that the government's ratings on how people think they're doing at handling Brexit have consistently been pretty poor. Yeah. Now, that said, that's been the case for a, you know, a big chunk of the time since the referendum. And in that time since the referendum, <laughs> they've won, in to some extent, two general elections. I mean, Theresa May's victory was one of those victories that might have felt more like a defeat, but she was still Prime Minister mm. the day after. And of course, then there was Boris Johnson's 2019. So I, I think there's a blog post you could people could probably hunt out for me from a few years ago, talking about how this was their big Achilles heel. Mm. And of course, if we now know the two general election results since that, that seems a less wise blog post, maybe, than it felt at the time that I wrote it. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that that weakness isn't still there, lurking, waiting no. to, to trip them up, particularly, as you say, if it's now a matter of, you know, if people just want this all over and done with, uh. then it the Tories may seem less the route to that. And this, is, this seems to me clearly what Keir Starmer is trying to pitch for, isn't he? Uh. He's trying to go for the, you know, with the Labour Party, you will be able to finally forget about Brexit, yeah. which leaves a big opening for the Lib Dems as a, you know, as a party that is more anti-Brexit than Labour. But the question would be, will be, how do we navigate a path that, you know, takes the opportunity of that political gap that also fits very neatly with our values, but still gives a chance of that gentleman that I mentioned of being able to get his vote? I mean, I think you'd also have to say, you know, the Conservatives were to some extent disadvantaged by COVID, not not Omicron in particular, but the, the fact that because they've been tackling the pandemic since, you know, that general election victory almost, mm. you know, they haven't really got many achievements <laughs> to then since they, they, they won that election a couple of years mm. ago. It's actually quite difficult for the Conservatives to point to much that they've done that has made a kind of tangible difference. I mean, they can point to a little bit of progress on recruiting more police, but, you know, they haven't built any hospitals yet or any extensions to existing hospitals, we should say. You know, the, I don't think people are beginning to see very much improvement in terms of, you know, schools. Yeah, either what, because... would, would we have seen that even without COVID? I mean, if you ask the question, oh. what did Boris Johnson achieve as mayor of London? Mm. It's not... 
I mean, there was the airport that never happened, the Garden Bridge that never happened. The big thing that happened was the Olympics, but that was really all due to stuff. Yeah. He, I mean, what he did manage then, which I think he's not managed in his time as prime minister, was at least enough competence as to not to screw mm. up the plans that mm. he had been left by his predecessor mm. uh, over the Olympics. But yeah, but other than the Olympics, what did he actually achieve? No, like what, I, was, what, was, what was he wanting to do as mayor of London? Even now that we can look back on his terms as mayor of London, what was his man? So I'm not sure that Boris Johnson... Yeah. is that sort of politician no and i must admit if anyone hasn't heard it i would urge them to try and get hold of the interview that boris johnson did today with sky's sam Coates. Mm. i don't know if you you saw that or heard that but this is the one where he basically blames the media for yeah the impudence I mean, uh, of reporting it, on his failures but i mean <laughs> you know that was boris johnson who seemed to me completely out of sorts mm. i mean you know he is normally, whether you like his speaking style or not, able to mm. punch home a few great lines. Yeah. You know, you, you know what he's talking about, even if he sometimes rambles <laughs> slightly. Um, but he just seemed like someone punch drunk to me. I mean, that was an incredible interview, I thought. I mean, you know, that really did look like a politician who was on their way out. Yeah. I mean, uh, if, didn't really if, have any understanding if, of what had happened, what had hit him. If, and it's a massive if, but if one wanted to be considerate towards him for a moment, I mean, there's a, whoever's prime minister as of today, you know, you know today would have huge amounts of pressure on them. Yeah. But yeah. you've got Omicron and mm. just what might, you know, if that goes wrong, just that's horrible, horrible, horrible. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, you've got the real r risks of Ukraine and Taiwan, you mm. know, are just, two different situations where there mm. is a lot of mm. military threat and I guess in the Ukraine case it's reasonably credible that there may be outright military intervention of some sort by the Russians you've got the fact that he's just become a father I know people mm. tend not to uh to forget the politicians are humans as well but I think for for all but the very worst of fathers that's something that takes up a lot of time and emotional energy and so on and you've got an economy that's in a pretty ropey state. You've got the peace in Northern Ireland, which is perennially on the verge of falling apart. You know, you've got just the to-do list every day is mm. absolutely massive. And he seems to be really wilting under the pressure at the moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just, I just I urge people to listen to it because if you listen to it and imagine yourself as a Conservative MP listening to that, I think you would be very worried. I mean, this is someone who clearly desperately needs another holiday. Mm. <laughs> he seems to be on holiday quite a lot, but he yeah. obviously needs another one. And, and just, you know, the, the lack of coherence, the, the lack of, uh, you know, the ability to take any kind of responsibility for what was going on, the lack of any insight you know, into what some of the problems might be. Even just the lack of any kind of rehearsed lines, I think, would really worry me if I were a Conservative MP. I mean, you know, that that's the, I guess for me, that's the first time I've looked at him and thought, mm, I'm really not sure that this guy can survive that much longer. And after all, uh, you know, it shouldn't really come as any great surprise because... You know, he was never going to be a great prime minister. He was not chosen by the Conservative Party uh, uh, as a you know competent, um, hardworking chief executive. He was chosen as someone uh, who would win them mm. the next election and, you know, would get Brexit done. So 
in some ways, he, he's simply revealing all the flaws, all the problems that most people who know Boris Johnson or even know a little bit about him, but always predicted would in the end, you know, come out and possibly do for him. Yeah. Well, it will be very interesting in months to come to come back and listen to this to see how well or not the future course of British politics has just been foretold. Yeah. But I guess that maybe sort of brings us on to this question about what are the lessons mm. uh, from North Shropshire that are applicable to actually any of the three parties. Um, okay. I think for the Lib Dems, we've touched on this a little bit, particularly this question about getting the balance between our pro-Europeanism and winning over, in a way, small-L liberal soft conservatives who may not necessarily be champing at the bit for Britain to rejoin the EU and you're getting that balancing act right. There's obviously some lessons around the intensity of the campaign that was run and the, the, how crucial that was, and therefore about you know, Lib Dem organisation and so on. I do wonder, though, for the Labour Party, now in Old Bexton Sid Cup, they got a 10% swing. In Cheshire and Amersham and in North Shropshire, the Lib Dems got a much, much bigger swing. Now, certainly Labour did just hold on to uh, Batley and Spen, but in terms of swings, that wasn't, you know, a triumph either. There was the Hartlepool result. It seems to me that whilst Labour can perhaps take a bit of satisfaction from Boris Johnson having been given, you know, such a kicking, <laughs> a metaphorical kicking by the Lib Dems over a couple of by-elections, it must surely raise some questions for Labour, though, about why they're not quite able to do the equivalent themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think if I were um, in, in the Labour Party and in the, to the top of the Labour Party, I would worry a little bit about that. I mean, I, I realise that <laughs> a Lib Dem is bound to mm. compare the swings. Uh, mm. You know, you've done three times as well as they have in, in Bexley and Cup. Um, it would be mean of me to do a bar chart. But but yes, that it does. It does. I get you know not augur as well as perhaps it might do. You know, the, the Labour can't pull off these kinds of swings. I mean, it might simply be that the Labour just are not as good at by-elections as the Lib Dems. You know, there's just not that culture. I don't know how much they were able to kind of flood the constituency in, in Old Bexley and Sidcombe. I'm not sure. So in some senses, they may write it off as, you know, never really being their great strength and wanting to concentrate on the, the national scene. I mean, I think... Having said that, I mean, you know, although, you know, obviously it's a, it's a great cause for celebration for Lib Dems today. I mean, by-elections really aren't everything. You know, mm -hmm. we should really look at the, the national situation. Uh, and for Labour, that does look a little bit more promising now. You know, he's ahead of Boris Johnson, a number of, you know, key areas. They are beginning to move into, uh, you know, what looks like perhaps a little more of a sustainable lead than they have um, before. It does look like voters you know, are beginning to tire of the Conservative Party. And perhaps, and I think this is the important thing, beginning perhaps to connect the Boris Johnson government to the governments that have gone before. And I think one of the mm. one of the brilliant things that Boris yeah, Johnson's yeah. been able to do for the Conservative great. Party is, is get people to believe that somehow everything began in year zero, December 2019. Yeah. Whereas, of course, you know, we're, we're talking about a Conservative Party that has been in government and, and led government since 2010. Uh, and if Labour, you know, can some remind people that that is the case and that we're dealing with a government that is tired, that has been there too long, I think that will be quite significant. So, I mean, I, 
I, I think you're right. Labour does need to, to, to try and work out why it's not doing by-elections anyway as the Lib Dems. But, you know, there, there are some, I think, you know, causes for optimism for the Labour Party more generally in the national... In, including, I think, actually in council by-elections, that mm. there has in the last few weeks been a notable uptick in Labour's performance, that Labour is starting to gain council by-elections from the Conservatives here and yeah. there. Yeah. In a way that for, for large periods earlier this year, you could do quite fun calculations of number of days since the Lib Dems have last taken a seat from the Tories compared to number of days since Labour have last taken a seat from the Tories. And those calculations are now, you know, scored rules or maybe even a smaller number for Labour now and again. Um, so there has been in the last, and I think that does seem to be quite related to the wave of scandal news that we've had. That it, That's it, interesting. That is maybe maybe it's just the luck of the draw about which by-elections have come up but i i my hunch is that it there is something genuine yeah. happening there as well yeah and for for your listeners i mean maybe most of them know this but we should say that mark's one of the few people who actually uh, and i mean this in a good way takes these things seriously <laughs> and does actually keep an eye on yeah. Uh, these local by-elections you know so if you if you do want to as as Mark does you know get some sense of of how they're moving he's worth following on all this because certainly Mark you're the only person I I I follow who you know tells me about this kind of stuff well I should say the Britain elect website Andrew Teal does a brilliant set of previews every week and their Twitter feed then has the results yeah I, I do rely quite a lot on on the information they gather and mm. sort of give them full full credit for that. Mm. Um, but I think the thing that people often forget or overlook about council by-elections is there's quite a few of them. And so absolutely each individual council by-election is even more idiosyncratic than an individual parliamentary by-election. But yeah. because the number that there are, it'll, it'll they'll be typically a, a handful very occasionally it gets into double figures but most weeks you've got more than zero or one or two so there's enough each week that over three or four weeks just the luck of the draw gives you a spread across the yeah. country and of different ways and so that's why i think there is there is a bit of a recent uptick perhaps for, for labor i mean for the conservatives i guess the the big question mark for them is is the lesson that they need to drop boris johnson but but i wonder also if there's a lesson for them about just you know, twice in a row up against the Lib Dems. They've they've run not terribly impressive by-election campaigns. I obviously hope that they don't learn that lesson. Well, I think the problem for them is that they have to have something positive to say. Mm. And at the moment, that you know, there isn't much positive that they can, they can talk about. There isn't, uh, you know, a record of achievement since 2019 that they can really talk about. But I, as you say, I do think, you know, for for many voters, and you will have picked this up, Boris Johnson is a real problem now. But you know, as I I think I wrote something for Open Democracy this week. I mean, it, it's easy to say, well, drop Boris Johnson, but then of course the obvious next question is, who do you replace him with? And to me, the the two obvious candidates, Sunak and and particularly Liz Truss, are going to have difficulty holding together the electoral coalition that Boris Johnson managed to pull together in 2019. You know, this this mix of you know affluent, comfortable voters in the south and you know less affluent in, in many ways voters in the, in the north uh, and the midlands you know boris johnson has this kind of unique appeal 
but it's also down to Boris Johnson's willingness to spend money, to be honest, and, and, and willingness to actually talk about the, you know, the state doing some, mm. some good in a way that you know, perhaps Theresa May did as well. And certainly that's not the kind of conservatism that Liz Truss believes in. And actually, for all his uh, willingness to splash the cat on the pandemic, it's not the kind of conservatism that Rishi Sunak um, believes in either. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that that many conservatives actually get that. You know, I think they put it all down in 2019 to Boris and, and Brexit and, and actually understate the extent to which, as you know, we've already been talking about, that, that victory was based on Boris Johnson's Conservative Party being willing to actually attend to some of the problems that years of austerity had created in, in many of our key public services. And, and yeah, if you look at that's rights, you know, are they going to be able to do that? And if you think about the ambulance service in North Shropshire that we were talking about, you know, that mm. is, you know, the, that's a, 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 a set of problems that essentially come from underfunding. It's not like the answer to losing North Shropshire is a sort of period of fiscal responsibility in which the NHS budget's further squeezed. It's, mm. you know, it's, going out in North Shropshire campaigning for tax cuts and and austerity doesn't seem to me like likely to be the solution political problem but it is quite likely to be the package that appeals to Tory members in that leadership election whenever it comes. Yeah certainly to Tory MPs anyway I mean but membership you know probably a little bit more that's to true that's, yeah. than some of the MPs but but you know many of those MPs are you know, not necessarily hardcore libertarians like um, Liz Truss, but they're certainly still pretty Thatcherite. I mean, they really don't want to see the state grow any more than it absolutely needs to. And they're already beginning to worry, you can see, about, you know, the size of the state due to the pandemic. And, you know, certainly if, if you know, they're intending to sort of retrench in order to recoup some of the money spent during the pandemic, I think that will be a disastrous idea for the Conservatives. And I think Boris Johnson would probably stop them doing that, but I'm not sure those candidates most likely to replace them would. Interesting times then. We should wrap up then, but just maybe one final question for you, Tim, before we do. I think there's lots of good news for the Lib Dems in all the stuff that we've discussed, including the, the continuing Tory troubles. What's the what's the little question of doubt? What's the thing that should give us pause for thought? Feel free to say nothing, obviously. <laughs> but is is there anything? And I say that partly because I think it's now conventional wisdom, but in this case, definitely correct conventional wisdom that when the Lib Dems won, we won the Brecon and Radnor by election a few years back. Mm. But in that case, the smallness of the Lib Dem majority was a warning sign that the party didn't really sort of key into properly so is there anything that red flag you wish to wave well I mean I I would simply say and this is being realistic and I, I'm sad to say it for Helen Morgan but it is quite unlikely that the Lib Dems will be able to hold this seat at the next election and you know if they if they focus too much on trying to sort of defend incredible gains like this rather than actually concentrate on the seats that they can win and you know we we kind of have helped in some senses you know building a list of those then they will come a cropper but I don't think the Lib Dems will make that mistake I think you know they'll be celebrating this victory today but I think most people at the top of the the Liberal Democrats including yourself and and actually most people on the ground in the Liberal Democrats 
have got a pretty shrewd idea of which seats they really need to concentrate on and which seats they have a, a good chance of winning without some kind of massive swing away from the Conservatives. In other words, the seats that they can win on a, you know, a swing of, of, of five or, you know, or 10 or possibly even 15 percent rather than 34 percent. I think there's an important matter of geography, which is, I guess, the caveat I would add to your caveat, which is there aren't that many of those sorts of Lib Dem Tory seats that near North Shropshire. And the I saw there was one Lib Dem member who tweeted earlier today, well, this solves the problem of what our target seat in the West Midlands is going to be. There is there is some truth in that, that, there, that I think if her seat was, let's say, adjacent to Daisy Cooper seat in St Albans and Daisy you know is easy to forget how briefly she's been an MP given what an impact she's had on the party and indeed on, on politics more widely then you know, I think that would be a much greater dilemma but in practice there's a big chunk of uh, Lib Dem members for whom North Shropshire is going to be the nearest target seat that they can yeah they can go and help in I also think that there is it's the sort of seat that the nature of the communities makes it possible to dig yourself in mm. as a you know, campaigning popular MP in a way that Owen Pattinson actually didn't really do but you know the geography of the seat is very helpful mm. uh, for that so I, I definitely rate Helen's chances higher than yours but you're right it's you look at the fate of parliamentary by-elections there's a good number where at the next general election we've won it you know we won it again we mentioned Eastbourne before which is an example of that the original Brecon and Radnor by-election again you know Lib Dems held it or predecessor parties held it at the next election but of course there are warning signs you know the other way too so I think I would well so certainly wouldn't want to respond to your your point with any degree of complacency I think there is a bit more hope for Helen uh, possibly there but as 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 in the cliche of podcasting time will tell <laughs> so thank you so much for your time Tim really appreciating you finding time at quite short notice uh, for this discussion and uh, people who have uh, found Tim's views interesting or thoughtful or addictively aggravating do look out in the podcast feed for the previous episodes with him which are full of all sorts of other interesting discussions so Thank you so much for listening. People can tweet comments to me at Mark Pack or Tim at Prof Tim Bale. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.